Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome back to another episode of New Books on Japanese Studies, a podcast channel of the New Books Network. I am Jingyi Li from the University of Arizona. Today, we have Dr. William Brecher with us to talk about his new book, Japan's Private Spheres, Autonomy in Japanese History, published by Brill recently. Uh, this book looks into the sociocultural preconditions or predispositions of individuality through an array of case studies. Dr. Brecher is currently teaching and researching about East Asian history at Washington State University. So welcome, Puck. Thank you so much for joining us today on the new books on Japanese studies. Thanks, Jingyi. It's nice to be here. Thank you. So this is such an interesting topic. We hear a lot in Japanese classes when we first start learning about Japanese language and culture. Um, the, the teachers will always tell us about the Japanese collectivism and Western individualism story. And we are many Japanese learners are told about the ula omote disparity, the 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 um public-private disparity. So how did you become interested in historicizing this issue? How did it all begin? Yeah, so it all began with my classes. I noticed that my students often referred to this Japanese collectivism, Western individualism pairing. uh, And I felt that as a teacher, I should warn them uh, against these types of stereotypes and essentialisms But on the other hand, we all tend to do it, right? Uh, These sorts of tropes uh, are expedients. We use them for convenience, even while knowing that they're not academically viable. Um, And in fact, you know, as academics, so much of our work is focused on rejecting these stereotypes. So... I've always felt that uh, we cannot uncritically accept these dichotomies, nor can we uncritically reject them. So where's the middle ground? Uh, Can we historicize Japanese collectivism, Japanese individualism, Japanese privacy, etc.? And in the process, uh, learn what's true, what's accurate, what's not accurate, and also learn how those ideas uh, evolved over time. And clearly they do evolve over time. We can look back and see that individuality and autonomy um, are more pervasive, uh, more tolerated uh, in some historical times than than they are in others. Um, The Taisho period, for example, Uh, We've all studied about Taisho democracy and the existential boom uh, that occurred during that time with so many people turning inward and and, uh, exploring their interiority and so forth. Um, And, you know, another time that jumps out, obviously, is the post-bubble economy, the lost decades, uh, right? This was another time. Uh, that was described uh, as uh, a new era, a moral crisis, when people were thinking only about themselves, people were turning inward. Um, So if we can see fluctuations in the prevalence of private spheres and the prevalence of autonomy, then we should be able to historicize that. 
That's really impressive. I, 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 it's so, um, this is such a high level of professionalism that in order to explain to your language class students, you're writing a book about this whole issue. But um, I'm actually a big fan of your first book, The Aesthetics of Strangeness, which deals with the history of eccentricity in early modern Japan. Then your second book was on wartime Japan. And now we have a book on individuality that covers from pre-modern, early modern to modern Japan. How did your research subject transform? Yes, my research subjects uh, jumped around quite a bit throughout my career, uh, jumped around both in terms of the topics I've studied and also the time periods that I've studied. Uh, I choose a research topic because it interests me and I want to know more about it. And when you approach research that way, you become attracted to what you don't know. Uh, this means that I'm constantly doomed to start from scratch whenever I begin a new project, uh, rather than building off of my old projects. Uh, and although this is a lot more work, in the end it's more fun for me personally, uh, more rewarding because I'm broadening my knowledge of the field. Uh, and that goes particularly for this book, which covers over three centuries of Japanese history. Uh, so, uh, yeah, I guess I'd describe myself as a generalist. And being a generalist pays dividends uh, in the classroom, certainly. It allows me to teach uh, more broadly, mentor more students with broader interests. Uh, of course, there are downsides to it also. Uh, as many of my colleagues, uh, my fellow Japanese historians will point out, uh, a jack of all trades is a master of none. Um, but I feel that there is a deficiency of generalists in Japanese studies. And I think the field could use more of them. I certainly agree. So for your next book, can we expect something completely different? Yes, in fact. Nice. I look forward to it. <laughs> so um, for this book, um, I understand that it covers a lot of materials. Um, it's a, an array of case studies. Could you bl briefly talk about the structure of the book and how it serves your, um, your, uh, the agenda of this book? Okay. Uh, so the book traces the relationship between the public and the private in Japan from about 1600 up uh, to the pre-war era, uh, the 1930s. Obviously, this is a massive topic. Uh, it's so broad that it's not really researchable by standard methods. Uh, you can't go to a database and do a search <laughs> for Japan's private spheres. Uh, you can't do a search for Japanese privacy or individuality, autonomy, and so forth. Uh, you won't get anything. Uh, you get only tidbits, or you get perhaps only articles, the sort of reductive scholarship that you're trying to avoid. Uh, there's, so there's no trove of documents about the private in Japanese history. Uh, after all, the private is supposed to be hidden. Uh, if there's a trove of documents, then they've been published and they were not <laughs> probably uh, not meant to be hidden. 
Um, of course, there are autobiographies and letters, but comparatively few, and many of these have already been well studied. Uh, and in any case, uh, those types of documents do not speak well for the broader societal conceptualizations of privacy and autonomy that I was that I was trying to get at. Uh, they're not what I mean is they're not representative. Uh, so for this reason, I steered away, or, or I mostly steered away from analyzing private spheres of a set of individuals, um, because they would not be representative either. So I settled on a collection of case studies um, of spheres or spaces that appeared to tolerate autonomy or tolerate independence and afforded people a measure of freedom from public oversight. So that's uh, how I came to organize the book. As far as uh, the layout or the structure of the book goes, uh, I start with three short chapters that conceptualize the private in Japanese history, meaning uh, definitions of public and private, uh, and then a chapter on the private in Edo, the Edo period, and then a chapter, a short chapter on the private in the Meiji Taisho period. Uh, and then after that, I have nine more chapters, uh, which are case studies of autonomy. Uh, there are three chapters on the Edo period, and I look at uh, peripheral spaces um, in one chapter. In another, I look at childhood, and then in the third, I look at uh, the arts, uh, self-interrogation. It's self-interrogation and self-indulgence in the arts, it's called. Uh, and then moving on to the next part, there are three chapters um, on aspects of Meiji Taisho era. I look at uh, deviant individuals, and then I move on to two chapters on education and individuality. And then uh, the final chapters look at leisure, uh, which is an obvious place to look uh, to find people enjoying privacy and autonomy. Uh, so the book covers a ton of ground in 12 relatively short chapters, uh, jumping around uh, to a multitude of topics. And much of the time I was writing this book, I heard voices in my head telling me uh, that this topic was not academically viable, this topic is, is toxic, and that by writing it, uh, I was just inviting a storm of criticism and accusations about essentialistic scholarship and so forth. Uh, but eventually I told myself to just ignore those voices in my head. And I'm, I'm, in the end, I'm glad I did. I think there's a lot of value in taking on these macro level projects, looking at something from 30,000 feet and than doing one's best to try to explain it, even if that explanation uh, can never be comprehensive or can never be complete. Yeah. One of the um, things I was amazed by um, was the innovation, the level of innovation of all these case studies. So I actually read one of your articles on Negishi, um, how how the how the, its residents formed almost a small community 
on themselves. But so I thought at that time when I read the article, I thought your next project was going to be something about reclusion. And I got very excited yeah. about it. But then I, I, as I was reading this book, I noticed how some of these cases or similar cases may have been mentioned by other scholars in other studies, but somehow in this book, they all come back to the theme of public and private, which that they come back together seamlessly, which was so amazing. Yeah. Um, so I'm really glad that you ignored that voice in your head and went on <laughs> with this book. Uh, yeah, well, we'll see what happens. Uh, we'll see what sort of uh, reviews it gets. Um, there may indeed be a storm of criticism out there waiting, uh, but that's okay. Uh, you know, that that's constructive also. Uh, nonetheless, you know, I'm, I'm glad this book is out there. It was really re rewarding. The process of writing and researching it was quite rewarding, and and I had you know little almost every on a daily basis little epiphanies that really uh, you know that really made it, it exciting uh, to work on this. Indeed. So to get to a bit of um, details in the book, one of the essential purposes, as you mentioned, is to define public and private in a Japanese context. How would you describe them now, and how do they differ from the conventional Western understanding of public and private? Yeah, so defining public and private, uh, you know, this called for extensive discussion, and it's one reason why I needed three chapters to contextualize the book's topic before I got into the case studies themselves. So I discussed public and private not in the Habermasian sense that we in the West sort of take for granted. Habermas talks about public spheres in the context of uh, modernization, westernization as democratic spaces where private citizens can vo voluntarily uh, come together and discuss matters that interest them. In Japan, uh, it's the terms uh, oyake or ko, public, and then uh, watakshi, or she, private, um, that I looked at, and, and I used those terms to uh, define public and private. Um, and they have different meanings, and the meanings shift over time. Uh, ko, or oyake, uh, refers to officialdom, uh, or the state, or the government, or secular political uh, authority. And then she or watakshi refers to contexts uh, beyond that or free of obligations to that type of authority. Um, and it refers particularly to the free pursuit of self-interest. So, um, you know, the private or she or watakshi is constantly re referred to as a subordinate to the public or even absent uh, from Japanese society. Some scholars have called the private sphere paltry and unworthy, uh, or they call it amorphous residue. These are actual quotes that, or descriptions that people use to describe private spheres. Um, 
And one can debate, I suppose, whether this is true or not. One can debate, you know, the relative position vis-a-vis, you know, of the private vis-a-vis the public. Uh, but there's no doubt that Watakshi uh, and Oyake, uh, the public and the private, do have a relationship. Uh, they hold each other in orbit. Um, they are interdependent. Um, and so it's that relationship that I'm looking at uh, in this book. That is very interesting. Um, so I was really intrigued by part two, in which you talked about individuality in the Edo period. Not, not That's not because I specialize in the Edo period, but it reminds me of... Uh, another book from a while ago that talks about individuality and nativism thinkers um, by Peter Nosko. But your perspective is more focused on self-indulgence and self-interrogation. Could you elaborate on this a bit? Yeah, so in contrast to nativist scholars or neo-Confucian scholars that assert their individuality by writing texts, uh, and in the course of writing texts, carve out mm, distinctive discursive spaces or ideological spaces for themselves uh, as individuals. Uh, In contrast to that, I look at societal spaces where anyone might explore autonomy. Uh, I look, the ones I look at are peripheral spaces, suburbs uh, like Negishi, uh, that's one of them. And these spaces enjoyed remarkable administrative freedom. Um, Many were in between spaces or in between jurisdictions. Uh, They were neither parts of cities nor parts of the countryside. Um, And they were out, uh, many of them were without clear administrative oversight. Um, And this afforded them some degree of freedom uh, denied to uh, other types of spaces. I also look at childhood as a period of comparative autonomy. Uh, of course, uh, childhood and child rearing, child experience, experience varied tremendously by class. Uh, but children were remarkably unsupervised in, in the Edo period. Boys especially uh, benefited from this much more than girls. Uh, they were expected to learn by watching and emulating their siblings, their older siblings, and their older peers. And commoner children moved around quite freely and and were largely unpunished uh, until around the age of seven. And even after the age of seven, between the age of seven and the age of majority, uh, which is usually around the age of 15, uh, they were learning how to balance their childhood freedoms with various responsibilities to the family and to the community. Um, so I, I, I posit that childhood, uh, to varying degrees, uh, was also one of these spheres of autonomy. Uh, and then I look, uh, at self-indulgence and self-interrogation among artists and writers, Bunjin, uh, specifically. Uh, many of these people produced self-portraits, um, that are not widely known, um, a surprising number of them wrote autobiographies or autobiograph- auto- autobiographical uh, journals or texts of some sort. Uh, many of them referenced themselves in their poetry and other writings. Uh, so I find 
this lit artistic and literary self-interrogation becoming increasingly common uh, during the last century of the Edo period, especially in the last decades. And to me, this is a tangible turning inward um, that really anticipated the more structured inward turn that would happen uh, later in the Meiji period and Taisho period, uh, inspired by Western artists and writers. Um, and so for me, this phenomenon clearly reflected a desire for greater autonomy um, and a kind of self-indulgence in the self, in the private self, rather. That's a really good point. And then moving on to part three and part four, you deal with modern Japan. Um, so you especially look into public individuality and education. So how did the relationship among them change after the establishment of the Meiji government or perhaps after the establishment of the official education system? Okay, yeah. So this relationship between individuality and education in Meiji and Taisho was fascinating. And it, it took me two chapters to tell this story. Uh, in short, when the Meiji government established a modern education system in the early 1870s, it looked to various uh, educational models, pedagogical models being used in the West. Uh, developmental education, uh, or kaihatsu kyoiku, was uh, popular at this time. And uh, that particular pedagogy re rejected the notion of children as empty vessels and the notion that education should be a one-way transmission of knowledge from the teacher to the student. Um, it was a child-centered pedagogy. It, tr it treated teachers as facilitators and children as the primary agents of their own education. Uh, so from that, from the standpoint of developmental education, uh, the goal of schooling was the child's individual and moral development. It fostered individuality. It, it, it held that individuality was paramount. And uh, many Japanese educators and many Japanese school districts enthusiastically embraced this idea, at least in theory. Uh, and some within the government as well embraced it. But this principle of respecting individuality uh, that was so popular, uh, at least in theory at this time, also conflicted with the nationalistic sort of top-down reforms uh, being advanced by Mori Arinori, who was the first uh, education minister. Um, those reforms came in, in the mid-1880s, uh, 1890s. And by the turn of the century, the Meiji government was issuing directives that acknowledged the importance of honoring student individuality, but also at the same time having teachers correct student individuality. Um, students' individuality was actually being monitored and recorded by teachers in individuality charts. Um, and it even became incorporated into grading uh, and became a criterion for graduation. So in other words, we see a process by which 
child-centered individuality becomes transformed into state-dictated individuality. Uh, and I refer to this as the development of public, what I call public individuality at this time. I thought that was a very brilliant way to call it. Um, as I was reading that part, I, I actually was reminded of this recent uh, piece of news in Japan where they, um, I think it was in a middle school, they, they forced their students to dye their hair black, even though their natural hair color was <laughs> brown. And so would you say the these um, implements of public individuality in the Meiji and Taisho period have any effects on, have any impact on modern Japanese education system? Like right now? Oh, yes, absolutely. Uh, the government still pays, continues to pay lip service to uh, fostering student individuality uh, throughout, you know, throughout the post-war period and in, into today. Uh, you know, every decade or two, they they reissue the same sort of uh, well declaration that education needs to honor uh, student individuality and so forth. But um, but actually, in terms of in terms of actual pedagogies, nothing really seems to change. Nothing really seems to happen. The, the example of students being forced to dye their hair is a perfect example of that. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Wow. Hope um, maybe maybe <laughs> maybe one day they'll actually encourage real individuality. But <laughs> well, so, yeah. We'll, yeah. we'll see. We'll see. Uh, you, you mentioned um, this uh, fostering individuality, fostering morality. Um, one of the interesting things you mentioned in the book is how the changing how how privacy was understood. Um, as well as the way that morality and duty was understood um, in this context. Could you talk more about this? Sure. So uh, <clears throat> you can see changes in the concept of privacy and duty by, for example, looking at how leisure changed uh, over the course of the 19th century uh, or the long 19th century, I should say. Uh, in pre-Meiji Japan, leisure uh, had been conceptualized through terms like asobi, play, and uh, tanoshimi, enjoyment, uh, which were generally unstructured uh, activities, uh, void of public content, void of moral content. Uh, in fact, you could even look at them as, as a, a respite from content. Um, so typical activities at this time uh, would be going to hot springs, going on pilgrimage, uh, pilgrimages, poetry, composition, tea ceremony, uh, going to festivals and so forth. All of these activities occurred in social settings rather than in private settings. But uh, modernization created a new dichotomy between work and leisure. Uh, or between work and leisure contexts, Western, the Western residents uh, in Japan in the Meiji, Meiji period introduced concepts of leisure 
wherein vacationing and general recreation occurred in private settings. Uh, leisure was considered separate from work, a separate counterpart uh, to work. It was to be enjoyed during prescribed hours, off-duty hours, and in specified off-duty spaces. Uh, but as Japanese accepted this new Western concept of leisure as a private uh, undertaking, they also set about instructing each other how to do it. Uh, newspapers, magazines, books, and e even later on the government itself uh, published a huge body of material that taught people when to vacation correctly, where and how to vacation correctly, uh, how, how to practice leisure, uh, and so on. So uh, in other words, it took this newfound private sphere of leisure and imposed upon it uh, nearly as much oversight as it did uh, on public contexts. Uh, and this goes for school children uh, as well. School children's summer vacations uh, as well were were supervised by their schools and by their teachers uh, to a surprising degree. That is very interesting to hear. Um, and does that, how does that, so, so I want to bring up this, the, the old tale of collectivism and individualism. Yeah, yeah. How, um, even though we don't, want to um, reinforce that stereotype or stereotypical um, reading of Japanese culture. Sure. Um, how do you think um, collectivism and individualism, if they can um, function as a contradicting pair in this case of fostering morality or um, let's say supervised leisure, supervised entertainment, does that connect to the, I guess, collectivist parts of Japanese society? So these collectivist parts of Japanese society, you, you know, this, this trope of collectivism, I mean, you see that forming now at this moment uh, in Japanese history, you know, the moment I'm referring to, of course, is Meiji Taisho. Uh, it's a, it's at that moment that I think these stereotypes are, are born and that they are developed. It's, it's at that moment when the public and the private are being negotiated or renegotiated. Uh, you know, they're, they're, they're bumping together and people are trying to figure out where, you know, where is their, uh, privacy. Where is their autonomy in this new, newly forming, modernizing society that Japan is building? Uh, there are new private spheres opening up. Um, so individuality and education that I mentioned, leisure that I just mentioned, uh, the home, the home as well, uh, becomes uh, a new sort of private sphere in the sense that the home now becomes a, a place of refuge from society. Um, but, but with these new private spheres opening up, those, they'll also be also simultaneously being eroded uh, by, 
by public oversight, by officialdom, and so forth. So, so these are these are negotiated spaces, and uh, yeah, so, uh, so so that's what's so fascinating to me uh, about this particular historical moment, uh, and you know, where where does when the dust settles? Uh, where does control lie? Does does control lie with the individual, or does control lie with the state, or or with or with uh, the societal group? Um, you have to kind of when the when the dust settles, you have to kind of go back to each one of these contexts uh, and and try to discern the degree or or or, or uh, rediscover the the relationship between. Uh, public and private and what has transpired and how that relationship uh, has been redefined by the process of modernization. That's very um, intriguing it's that collectors of that this trope that we all know nowadays being a byproduct of modernization mm-hmm. and uh, to 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 um, diving this further, why um, do you think did the state, um, feel the necessity to supervise individuality. What was the larger context? What was the larger purpose in this whole public individuality problem? Uh, yes. Well, you know that's an enormous question. Um, uh, it's it's a question I didn't go into in too much detail in the book because there's so much to say. Uh, and there's so many different answers. I think to that question, uh, I think the, sh- the short answer is that the Meiji oligarchs you know, came to power in 1868 without any clear vision of what they wanted to do with the country, without any clear vision of how to govern uh, and what they wanted the country to be. Uh, and, and so uh, they had to immediately assert their authority. Uh, you know, I think, I think there was some sort of, uh, you know, ne- neurosis going on there perhaps uh, among these, uh, you know, newly empowered oligarchs. Uh, you know, what are we doing here in power? Do we deserve to be here? Now what do we do? Uh, you, you know, I, I, we cannot reveal to the general public that, uh, we, that uh, we have no clear vision of how to govern now. Um, uh, and so under... You know, under these kind of circumstances, naturally, they wanted to to open the Japan, democratize, uh, not yet democratized, but uh, westernized. But at the same time, they also needed to firmly demonstrate their control and their political authority, their right to to govern. Uh, and by the 1880s, 1890s, uh, that became increasingly more authoritarian. Um, I think there was increasingly less trust in people to uh, govern themselves, increasingly less trust in democratic ideals. Uh, and, well, I mean, we all know what happened by the 1930s. We all know, you know, <laughs> what direction this went in. Uh, yeah. Indeed. So um, your book is very rich in its use of materials and case studies. Were there any of these cases or materials that particularly stood out to you during the research? Uh, 
case studies that particularly stood out, I think the, the case of individuality education and uh, individuality charts that I already described is particularly revealing because uh, it illustrates how Meiji leadership and society generally embraced this Western concept that was wholly inconsistent with uh, Japanese traditional practice and then made it their own, uh, converted it into something completely new. Uh, so much has been written uh, on Japanese modernization, speculating on how Japan was able to transform itself so quickly and successfully uh, as a modern society. Uh, and this case study, I think, is a perfect illustration of that process of adaptation, uh, or rather domestication, uh, the domestication of foreign ideas. Yes, I, I really loved that part too. Um, I, but I also um, really liked the end of the book to, in the in the epilogue. Um, you talk about how the Japanese government has been coping with this pandemic and how it systematically fails to find a balance between private and public interests. Uh, would you like to comment on that? Um, yeah, so the government uh, has been failing to find this balance between private and public interests, I think, for a long time. It's an institution that continues to abide by a traditional political culture, uh, but then at the same time, it's also forced to adhere to this American-style constitution. Uh, and so there's this implicit, I think, contradiction in Japanese politics. And I think this is one reason why Japanese people feel such apathy uh, for politics and such distrust in their own politicians. Uh, but I think they find a much better balance between private and public themselves. Private spheres uh, are palpable in Japan today. Uh, they may not appear as robust uh, as in many Western nations. Uh, and they also look very different uh, than, they, than they do in Western nations, but uh, they, serve, they serve the same functions. Uh, equally well, I think. Uh, I begin the book, in, in the prologue of the book, uh, I tell the story about seeing an office lady uh, standing outside in front of the National Diet Library very early in the morning, and she's singing. Uh, it appears to me she's rehearsing for a recital. She's quite a talented singer, and she's just uh, belting out this music and these lyrics um, in a very unselfconscious way. Uh, and you know, it was clear to me that she had nowhere else to rehearse. She couldn't rehearse in her own home uh, because there was no privacy there and she, and she had nowhere to go. So she went to this, uh, uh, to this well, semi-abandoned place in front of the National Diet Library uh, to do that. And she was treated, uh, she was treated as invisible. Uh, she was afforded, you know, complete privacy to do this um, by people like me who are who are sitting there waiting to get into the library. Now, you know, if she were in New York City, that would not happen. If she were in New York City, she would not be given afforded this type of privacy. I think uh, she would be even more visible uh, to pedestrians. People would stop and and stare at her uh, and point at her and things. So. 
uh, but not so in Japan. So, so private spheres are out there. Uh, they're ubiquitous. Uh, and um, it, it's time, I think, that they are acknowledged uh, and better understood. Yes, that's, um, that's a really good point. Now, um, you mentioned in the beginning that your next project is going to be completely different from this one. Um, do you have <laughs> any leads on where it's going? <laughs> Well, I'll just say that, uh, yeah, I've become interested in, in animals, non-human animals, uh, and the history of things like livestock and pets and animal care uh, in, in Japanese history. Uh, and uh, again, this is a brand new topic for me to study, but uh, I'm really enjoying it. Uh, I found some, some, some really interesting, rich primary sources. Uh, and so I'm excited uh, to see what comes out of that. Wow, definitely I'm looking forward to that. Yeah, well, thanks. Well, thank you so much for this uh, wonderful conversation. Thank you, Jingyi. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for joining us. And uh, for our listeners, to learn more about the history of individuality and autonomy in Japan, make sure to check out this book by Dr. William Brecher, Japan's Private Spheres, Autonomy in Japanese History. This is Jane Lee from New Books on Japanese Studies, and I will see you in the next episode.